following message is brought to you by Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We exist to bring glory to God by knowing Christ and making Him known. If you would like to visit our church, we hold multiple services on Sunday mornings starting at 9 a.m. We are located between Motokare Wharf and Edai Town. Pickups are available 709 1000. We'll be taking up our scripture reading from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through to 8. Verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to the sepulchre. And behold... There was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear, and for fear of him, the keepers did shake and become as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, fear, fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. Verse 6. He is not here. For he is risen, as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And, behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with great fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples Word. So, reading from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 8 this morning. We'll be in Matthew chapter 27 and chapter 28 this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to follow along with us. Matthew 27 and 28. We will crown him Lord of all for eternity. And that is based on the fact that he went to the cross and rose again. It's Easter Sunday, and I have found so much hope in the fact that he is no longer in the grave. The crucifixion from a human standpoint and a human perspective, that was the darkest day. The Son of God hung on a cross and his followers were scattered, his disciples were gone, only John stayed there with his mother. There were no books that had been written. The New Testament had not yet been penned. There were no Bible schools. There were no churches started. From a human perspective, the cross showed that Christ was a failure. And yet, I'm so glad to know that God does not view things the same way that we view things. And then you come forward three days... And from a divine perspective, it was a fulfillment of everything that was required in order to have redemption. For God had sent His Son to be a propitiation, as is so clearly explained in 1 John chapter 4, in verse 10. The Scripture says this, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. 
I know that you don't use the word propitiation normally and regularly, but it is a very important word to understand how big a deal the cross is. God sent forth Jesus to be a propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means a gift that turns away wrath. Talk pisin, baimi talk same bel kol. There's anger on one side, and yet you can give bel kol to turn away the anger. And that's as far as it goes. Propitiation is so much more than Belcold. God's anger abides upon our sin, and God knew that you'll never be able to take the wrath of God. Oh, you will be consumed for eternity where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. This is a terrifying thought to have the wrath of God upon you. You cannot handle the wrath of God. So He sent forth Jesus to be the propitiation, the gift that turns away His own wrath. For you and I can never take it. Instead, He sent Jesus to take it. God became flesh. And Jesus Christ became a man so that He could taste death for you and I. And God sent forth Jesus to be the One. Do not think for any single moment, please do not think that the cross was a momentary victory for Satan. Oh no! This was not a cosmic battle wherein Satan took the upper hand. No. This was God's plan from before the foundation of the world to send Jesus to the cross to take His wrath that would abide upon our sin. We will pick up our sermon for today in Matthew 27. I know that Brother Eric so uniquely left us with the crucifixion and Christ in the tomb last week, and I'm so thankful for that. We'll pick up with Christ coming off the cross in verse 57. This will be Matthew 27 and verse 57. You will remember that Christ has been on the cross for six hours. At nine o'clock in the morning known in the Scriptures as the third hour of the day. At nine o'clock in the morning, Christ was hung on the cross. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, He gave up the ghost. In those few hours, three hours of that, the earth was covered with darkness. And it was during that time that Jesus quoted the famous Psalm 22, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? He took upon Himself the sin of the world. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And He took the sin of the world upon Himself. Jesus the Messiah became the Passover Lamb and His blood was shed. And there at the end He cried to Telestai, It is finished. Everything that's required in order for us to be made right with God was complete at that moment. It is finished. He took upon Himself the sin of the world and then He gave up the ghost. These are important words. Please don't be mistaken. He does not say, and He died. He gave up the ghost. To quote His own words from John chapter 10 and verse 18, He made this statement, No man takes my life, 
from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. Jesus is the only one who gets to choose when He dies and when He resurrects. And He did that of His own power. And in His own death, even He maintained control of all things. As the custom was, the soldiers came to break the legs of the criminals on the cross. And when they came to Him, He had already given up the ghost. He was already dead. In that too, He fulfilled prophecy from Psalm 34 which said not a bone of His would be broken. All of the other crucifixions had broken legs, but not Jesus. And they ran the spear into His side and blood and water flowed from His heart. And now we will read from verse 57. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of, in, out of the rock He rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Can you allow your mind and your imagination to go to this moment where Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea together come to take the body off of the cross? Oh, this is Jesus. Can you let this sink in? This is Jesus. Nicodemus and Joseph are disciples. They love Him. And there is His lifeless body. If you study the New Testament, you will understand that the disciples did not expect this. And here is the lifeless body of Jesus. Just yesterday, we were hearing Him speak in the temple. And now, 24 hours later, His body is lifeless on a cross. And now these two men take His body. Both of these influential men take His lifeless body. And I can just imagine, have you ever handled the lifeless body of someone you love? Someone you walked with yesterday? And I can just imagine as they gingerly lift His hands off the nails. There had to have been deep emotions in that moment. For you do not take the body of Christ off the cross without getting His blood all over you. And they removed Him from the cross. And then, Scriptures tell us, John provided the linen and Nicodemus provided the spices. Somewhere near 40 kilos of spices. Precious spices to try to ward off the smell as the body would inevitably decompose. And as the custom was of burial, they wrapped the body with linen and placed the spices and wrapped some more and placed some spices and wrapped some more. And then they took Jesus' body and they laid Him in Joseph's tomb. Joseph had family plans for his tomb. It was incomplete. It was in a garden. 
And his plan was that one day he would have this tomb prepared for him and his family, and yet he realized that there was no one more precious that could be laid in his tomb than the Savior. And so he gave the tomb to the Savior. Oh, let the body of Jesus the Messiah be laid in the tomb. And in that moment, he has no idea that that would only be borrowed. He doesn't know that. All he knows is let him have what I have as my best. Two Marys sat across and watched. Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus had cast the demons. And the other Mary, it appears, perhaps the mother of James and John. Now let's have a look at the chief priests in verse 62. I'm going to look at, so that you know how I've outlined the remainder of the passage, I want to look at four major groups of people as we walk through the rest of the passage. We'll finish at the end of chapter 28. I want you to notice the emotions that are going on throughout this passage. There's a lot of emotion. For some, it's roller coasters. For some, they're steadfast. There's all kinds of emotions. The first one that we'll see today is the chief priest. Look at verse 62. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Here's an emotion I see that they've got coming out in them. They called him a liar. They called Jesus a liar. You see it in verse 63, they say, Sir, they're speaking to Pilate, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said after three days. Oh, it's interesting that the disciples forgot that. And here the chief priests and the Pharisees remembered it. They said that deceiver, in those words they said, Jesus is a liar. He stood and He lied to people. But don't you know that lying is not in the character of God? It's contrary to his very character. In fact, he's unable to lie. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. It's against his very character to even lie. In fact, Jesus in his own words about himself in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then Jesus tried to help the Pharisees while He was ministering in Jerusalem. He tried to help the Pharisees from John chapter 8 and verse 44. He's speaking to them and He says to them, Hey guys, you are of your father, the devil. The lusts of your father will you do. He was a murderer from the beginning and he abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar. Do you see this? Jesus is pointing at the fact that the chief priests are following a lie themselves, and yet they're sold to this idea that perhaps Jesus is the liar. Oh, this goes deep to their core. By the way, if I can just point this out this morning, friend, if you've not put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, essentially at your core, you are hoping that Jesus is a liar. Or perhaps you think he was a madman for claiming that he was the Son of God. Be careful that you don't find yourself this morning in the shoes of the chief priest. They said he was a liar. They claimed also that he would cheat. Look at verse number 64. 
They're speaking to Pilate and they say, command, Pilate, command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. So they're claiming that Jesus is going to cheat in this whole resurrection thing. They said that he was a deceiver, he was a liar. And now perhaps he's going to cheat with this whole resurrection thing. So hurry and seal the tomb so that nobody will be able to come and steal his body out. Now think with me how ludicrous that idea is. Either Jesus would have had to conspire with the disciples or the disciples would have had to conspire after the fact. Here's what I mean by that. So somehow, if what they are saying is true, if somehow Jesus thought that perhaps he was going to be crucified and not be able to rise from the dead, then he would have had to sit the disciples down and say, hey guys, they might just kill me. But if they do, would you come along and get my body out so that we can make something big of this? How stupid is that? Or perhaps they're thinking that the disciples are about to make a massive world religion by cheating and taking the body out to hide it. Now, if that was the case, and by the way, there are still people to this day that claim that. It's very hard, by the way. 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very clear that there were 500 witnesses in one place at one time that saw Jesus with their very own eyes. Hey, you go to court and one eyewitness can put you away for a long time. Try 500. Here's Jesus has been seen by 500 and yet the chief priests are going to claim that somehow the disciples are going to steal Jesus' body out of the tomb, go hide it. Now think about this for a moment. Those 11 guys, you know why I said 12, right? 12 was including Judas. One black, Judas, I'm going to him up sorry. But there's 11 now. Those 11 guys will all go to their graves holding to this singular thing. Jesus rose from the dead and that changes your life. Every single one of them. They were unlearned. They argued among themselves. Do you remember some of the things they argued about? I want to sit on your right hand. You sit on the left hand. No, me. I'm on the right hand. You on the left hand. James and John even went and got their mom to come and ask for them to be able to get on the right and the left. These guys can't get along. You think they're going to be able to hold on to this all the way until their dying day? And die not for it, but because of it. These guys hang on to it all the way to the end. He didn't cheat. But the chief priests are convinced that he cheated. The chief priests are also convinced that he's a fraud. They considered him to be a fraud. Look at it at the end of verse 64. They make this statement at the end of verse 64, if the disciples steal him away in the night, here's the phrase, so the last error shall be worse than the first. In other words, the claim of resurrection will be worse than the first error, and I begin to think about what was the first error. For the chief priest, most likely the first error would have been the triumphal entry of Christ through the eastern gate just a few days before. When Jesus on Palm Sunday, as they put down the palm branches and Jesus rode upon a donkey through the eastern gate, historians tell us as many as 250,000 people sang Hosanna, Hosanna, and walked through the gate with him. 
The chief priests stood along the tops of the wall and watched as their entire religious system was being undermined. And they said, this is a great error. Rome should have put a stop to this. And now they say, Rome, you better put a stop to it now because if not, the last error will be worse than the first error. They considered him to be a fraud. Now before we see Pilate's reaction to the request, I want to point out that if you just attend church and you just go through the motions, you're no better than the chief priests and the Pharisees. If you've not put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're no better than the ones who put on their robes and follow the laws and think that perhaps they might just be right. For it is trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone that will make the difference. Oh, be careful, because you're bordering on considering him a fraud. Let's have a look at Pilate now. You might remember Pilate's part in all of this. He was the governor of Judea. He's the one who had the authority ultimately to put Jesus to death. The chief priests wanted him dead, but they did not have the legal right to do it. They had to get Pilate's permission. And so Pilate is the one who had to do that. And we see throughout earlier in chapter 27, we won't turn back, but in chapter 27 and verse 17, Pilate wanted it to be Barabbas. He did not want it to be Christ. And all throughout the story, you see Pilate pushing away from anything to do with Christ's crucifixion. He continually pushes back. He wanted it to be Barabbas. Now keep in mind that Barabbas was a known, notorious criminal who was wanted and convicted for high treason. He had set forth a sedition, an uprising that involved the death of Roman soldiers. The book of Mark tells us about that. Barabbas was wanted and Pilate wanted him dead. And yet, in this one moment, he did his best to try to assuage their thoughts away from Jesus. Jesus, the one who does the miracles. And I can just imagine as Pilate brings Barabbas and Jesus before the crowd, and he says, here is the one who does the good things to help you. Here is the one who has caused all kinds of problems and brought the wrath of Rome upon us. Which one do you want? And you see it in his presentation. He wanted it to be Barabbas that would go to the cross. And instead, the people said, his blood be upon us. Let Barabbas go free. We see again as he washed his hands of the ordeal, Pilate did not want to execute Jesus. And you remember as he calls for the dish to be brought and he washes his hands, I have nothing to do with this. And then he still gives them, gives them the authority to put him to death. Chief priests are before Pilate now Look at verse 62. The next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came to Pilate. This is a phrase that can be easily overlooked and we can miss the significance of this. Think of the words, the next day. There was a reason that they had to rush to put Jesus in the tomb and it was because the next day was the Sabbath. You remember that? Now they are coming to Pilate the next day. You realize what they're doing? They're breaking their own law 
in order to further their own agenda. They're coming before Pilate. When they brought Jesus to Pilate, to the praetorium, the Jewish people had a custom that it was against their law to enter into the praetorium because it is a house that belongs to the Gentiles. And they would not go in. Instead, they sent Jesus in, lest they become unclean. Isn't it wonderful that our Savior went in and He became unclean on our behalf? Then He went to the cross and took the sin of the world and became unclean on our behalf. Oh, this is a glorious thought. But those chief priests and Pharisees, in the eyes of everyone else, stood outside of Pilate's hall. Lest they be seen as unclean. And yet, on the very Sabbath day, I do not know how they accomplished this, perhaps through a back door where no one else could watch them, they came to talk to Pilate. Do you realize all they cared about was what other people thought about them? Be careful, brothers and sisters, be careful. Your walk with God is between you and God. And here's Pilate again putting up with this Jesus who was crucified. Yesterday, he was put to death. And here, these chief priests are pressuring him. He has already made it clear that he wants it to be Barabbas. He's washed his hands of the whole ordeal. And now we can see in verse 65, he's going to watch out for his own self-interest. Look at verse 65. Pilate said to them, You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. You see, Pilate had been nothing but a pawn on a chessboard. He thought he had power, but ultimately he had no power, for he was being played by the chief priests. They played him from the start to the finish, and they were good at it. And every time Pilate did his best to not play along, they would back him into the corner and say things like, oh, if you don't do it, we'll tell Caesar. Pilate doesn't want to be a part of this at all. And yet he had to watch after his own self-interest. Oh, this is natural, by the way. For the natural man does not receive the things of God. 1 Corinthians makes that very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolish to him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And here's Pilate, just a natural man, not being led by the Holy Spirit. He has no idea what he's doing, and all he cares about is taking care of himself. Live to be governor for another day. Let's have a look at the women. As we come into chapter 28, we can see these women. It's now the first day of the week. Let's read from verse number 1. In the end of the Sabbath, that is, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. It's been perhaps ten hours since the end of the Sabbath. The Sabbath ends on Saturday at sunset. And now it is perhaps, I'm guessing, 5 o'clock in the morning. The sun has not yet risen. It's been maybe 10 hours, and I can just imagine that during that 10 hours, they've put aside everything that has to do with the Sabbath, and now they're wandering out. They've seen where the sepulcher was. They know where Jesus was laid to rest. 
And now they're coming, and they're going to find his body, and they want to anoint it. They want to show greater affection. I see the women here, first off, they wanted to respect his body. They wanted to show respect to his body. It's now the third day, and in the Jewish custom, according to the Jewish custom, on the fourth day, the soul departs from the body. That's not biblical, by the way. In fact, the Apostle Paul is very clear that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So please don't allow culture to tell you that perhaps when you die, the Spirit hangs around at the Matmat for a few days. No, 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 no. It's not what the Bible says. The Jewish people had a custom that said that the soul would stay for four days, and the reason that the soul would leave is because on the fourth day, the body would really begin to smell. The soul does not want to hang around with that smell. It's according to their culture. And so here it's very important for the ladies on the third day to come to anoint the body. The book of Mark adds in that there's a lady by the name of Salome that joins these two, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. The three of them come before the sun rises. And they come because they want to show respect to the body of the Lord Jesus. And I know that you already know this story, but let's read verses 2 to 4 so our minds can be refreshed. Verse 2, and behold. That word behold means it's a shocking moment in your life. Behold. You weren't expecting this. There was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Soldiers don't naturally fall over like dead men. And yet here in this one moment, giant earthquake, stones rolled back, the angel comes down and with his brightness knocks over these greatest of the great soldiers who thought that perhaps this would be the easiest guarding task they've ever had. He's got to go stand in front of a grave and make sure the dead guy doesn't come out. And they just failed at the easiest task they've ever been assigned to. This is the great morning, the resurrection morning, and please don't be mistaken, the angel did not come back to raise Jesus from the dead. In fact, the angel did not roll the stone back so that Jesus could get out. The angel rolled the stone back so that people could see that the tomb was empty. Jesus laid His own life down and Jesus raised His own life back up. And you say, well, how did He get out of the tomb? In the very same way that a few days later He walked through the wall and spoke to His disciples bodily and ate with them. Oh, He can walk through the walls of the tomb under His own power and here comes an angel to knock those guys down because there's some people that need to come along and have a look. And then the angel rolls the stone back and he says, step right in, boys and girls. You get a chance to see firsthand that the tomb is empty. The first Adam, that was Adam in the garden, when he sinned in his nakedness, He hid with His shame behind a tree. But the last Adam, that's Jesus, in His punishment for our sin, willingly hung naked on the front of the tree. Jesus humbled Himself and took on flesh so that He could taste death for you and I, so that you and I who are born into corruptible flesh might know incorruptible life. O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? 
Death is swallowed up in victory. He tasted death so that he could swallow it in victory. He overcame death and hell and the grave by an inside job. The first Adam, in his rebellion in the garden, cast blame over to his bride, but Jesus, in his obedience in the garden, redeemed his bride forever. Oh no, that Jesus went to the cross, not in a moment where Satan got the upper hand, but no, in an eternal moment upon which all of history hinges. Friend, the cross is everything to you and I, and the resurrection is the icing on the cake. Here in verse 5, you'll get to see some more of the women's response. Look at verse 5. They were shocked at what they found. Verse number 5, And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus which was crucified. I think the best word to describe what was going on in the hearts of these women is the pigeon word, Ayo. I can just imagine as these ladies come to the tomb pre-dawn and they're expecting we're going to anoint the body but we heard that there's a giant stone in front of the door and perhaps it's been sealed. They've not seen the ceiling itself. They don't know what that actually looks like but perhaps maybe those soldiers might just be kind enough to roll the stone back so they can anoint the body then they'll step away and let the stone go back. For who wants a tomb to remain open? And here they come with a thought in their mind that they have a task at hand to anoint the body. And when they get there, the tomb is already opened. And here is an angel, bright light, white shining clothes. And the tomb is empty. They do not know how to comprehend this. They don't know He's risen. All they know is the body is gone. And I can just imagine they came for the task of anointing the body. I don't know who brought the ointment and spices, but I can just imagine as the first one sees, the body's gone! Ayo! Jesus, Bumiya! I can just imagine as they back away from the open tomb, where did he go? Did the soldiers have something to do with that? And I hear the words of the angel on that morning, fear not. These ladies were shocked at what they'd seen. They were not expecting this. Fear not. You came looking for Jesus and He's not here. He's risen. See it in verse 6. He is not here for He is risen as He said. The chief priest remembered it, but you didn't. He's not here. He's risen, as He said. I can just imagine Mary. She's spinning through the file folders of her memory. Uh, When did He say it? When did He say it? I don't remember when He said it. He is not here. He is risen, and as, as He said. And then the angel invites them, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell His disciples that He is risen from the dead. And behold, He goeth before you into Galilee. There you shall see Him. Lo, I have told you. And now they willingly followed the instructions. See it in verse 8. They departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. You don't normally see those two together. You don't see fear and great joy in the same. You don't get to see that. Fear is 
I don't know what's going on. Great joy is, there's victory. And they're getting both of those right now. There's fear and there's great joy. I've not seen Him risen yet, but that angel, I've never talked to an angel before in my life, and that angel, he told me that Jesus rose from the dead. So there's great joy here, but I'm still afraid. And I'm, I'm excited, but I'm still afraid. And they're willingly following the instructions, and off they go to tell the disciples, this is the greatest news ever. We thought on Friday that it was the worst news ever, but now we have the greatest news ever. This is the dawn of the greatest day, for He is alive, He is risen indeed. And now in verse 9, you'll get to see that they worshipped the risen Lord. So on their way to go see the disciples, look at verse 9. And as they went to tell His disciples, behold, Jesus met them. What a gift. What a gift. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to stop them on their way. He could have let them bypass, but instead, He stops them. And He says, All hail. You hear the voice of Jesus. And they came and they held Him by the feet and they worshipped Him. They worshipped and they went to tell. I think perhaps you've seen all throughout this passage that there are some strong emotions. Strong emotions. We saw it with Joseph and Nicodemus taking Jesus off the cross. We saw it with the chief priests thinking that they knew what was right and being willing to kill somebody over it, then being willing to command Pilate, who goes and tells the governor what to do? You don't do that. They're going to great lengths. There's great emotion involved here. Pilate backed into the corner and concerned about the security of his own employment. He is so unstable. The women have been through highs and lows over the last few days, and yea, even this morning, they've been through highs and lows. They're probably emotionally drained. They've wept their way to the tomb, and now they're rejoicing as they leave. I think with all these emotional highs and lows, they're going to be ready for a nap soon. There's all kinds of emotion throughout this passage. But we'll look at one more here, and I want you to see the stability of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rock solid with a purpose from the foundation of the world. Look at verse 5. We see the Lord Jesus here. The Lord Jesus in this moment, He cared for their souls. Look at verse 5. He's speaking through the angels. The angel, verse 5, answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for He is risen, as He said. This is a moment for us to reflect that Jesus has been caring for their souls a lot longer than just that morning. He's been caring for their souls for a very long time. For Mary Magdalene, it was from the day that she had those demons and Jesus crossed paths with her. Mary, cast out these demons that care about your soul. James and John, their mother, how easy it would have been for Jesus to rebuke her and say, why in the world would you ever worry about the kingdom that is to come? You need to be thinking about your life today. And that's not where Jesus went with James and John's mother. 
And even in the moment as he rebuked Peter, Peter says to Jesus, oh no, you'll never go into Jerusalem where they'll crucify you. And Jesus says, get you behind me, Satan. You say, how can that be love? It's because Jesus has a purpose that is so much bigger than living through the weekend. His purpose is saving all of mankind from their greatest problem, sin. Oh, Jesus is caring for all their souls, and yea, He even continues to care for our souls even today. Jesus cared for their souls. In my mind in the resurrection, there's one verse in Romans chapter 4 that just makes my mind swell. I'll read it for you. This is Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. It talks about Jesus. He was delivered for our offenses. Oh, so often we are familiar with that phrase. For we will use that phrase. We say Jesus went to the cross for our sins. I think we all know that. At least we understand it from the phrase because we've heard it so many times. Jesus went to the cross for our sins. And yet we miss, well, why did He raise from the dead? For if He went to the cross and He died and He cried, Tetelestai, it is finished, everything that is required at the cross, then why would He have to raise from the dead? And Romans 4.25 helps us to understand that. He was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now I know that that's a big word, so hang with me here for just a moment. Justification means to be made right with God. So He went to the cross for our sins. And He was raised again for our justification. Don't think that He needed to be raised so that we would be made right. No, 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 no. For here means because of. He was raised again because of our justification. In other words, God looked down through time and saw, yes, your sin has been taken by Jesus. You are justified. And the resurrection of Jesus is God's stamp of approval that says, yes, it is done. You do not require anything else. So please don't think for one moment that you've got to go and add something else to your salvation. So it will not be this way. But perhaps if it were, On the day that you die and you come to heaven's gates, when you stand before God and He asks you, it won't be this way, but if it were, and He asks you, why should I allow you to come in? Don't you ever start the next phrase with I. No! Not I prayed a prayer, or I trusted Jesus, or I was a good person, or I got baptized. No, it's not because of I, it's because of Him. So when you stand there and He says, why should I? Because Jesus took my sin on the cross. That's where my hope is found, in Jesus alone and in nothing else. Oh, you can find Him caring for your soul. And then in verse 57, look back at 27 and verse 57. And you'll see Jesus keeping His Word. He cared for your souls, and then He keeps His Word. This one we have to study at just a moment. I'll take time to develop it. This is 27 and verse 57. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. I know there's a popular thinking that says... Rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. 
If that's the case, Joseph is hopeless. He says he's a rich man. Jesus did say it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because he's going to be trusting in himself. Your trust goes in Jesus, not in yourself. And so here's Joseph, a rich man, gives his tomb for Jesus to use it. Now, if you know your scriptures, you'll remember that in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9, there was a promise that had been made in that Old Testament 700 years before Christ. And that promise spoke of the resurrection and the tomb of Christ. Many of the prophecies in the Old Testament spoke of his death, things like he would be pierced. But this one in particular speaks of his tomb. So here's Isaiah 53 and verse 9. says this, He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Hear this, friend. Jesus went to the cross. It was a surprise to Joseph. Joseph did not sit over on the side and start flipping through his Old Testament to try and find out what it was he was supposed to do. He didn't come across Isaiah 53, 9 and go, well, he's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. Well, that must be me. No, that's not what happened. No, Joseph watched the Savior die. And he said, I want to give him my tomb. Even in his death, Christ kept His Word. He is with the rich even in His death. Now think of it from Pilate's perspective. You see, God is in control in all of these moments. The fulfillment of the rich man giving his tomb. But then think about it from Pilate's perspective. If you're Pilate, and you want to put an end to anybody that ever causes a problem in your region, and Joseph comes along and uses up all of his political capital to even ask the very question, can I please have the body? Pilate, if you want to make sure nobody ever does this again, you know what you do? You say, no! That body stays on the cross. He starts problems in my kingdom, I leave him up there to keep the next one from doing it. And you know what God did? Turned the heart of a king whithersoever he would. And Pilate gave the body. And then, to add to the significance, after Joseph walks out, in come the chief priests with their mindset, oh, we need to make sure that that tomb gets sealed because we don't want anybody later on to say he rose from the dead. And God, in that moment as well, orchestrated the things that would happen, that would set in motion for the next 2,000 years where you and I would celebrate every year on Easter, He arose from the dead. For Roman soldiers went and guarded a tomb and gave everything that they could to make sure that it didn't happen. And God, in all of His omnipotence, came forth out of the grave and He said, to fooey with the rest of you, I'm in control of all things. He kept his word. He also commanded the gospel to go into the world. See it in verse number 18. This is 28 and verse 18. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. I think it's important for us to see this. It does not fall on the same day as resurrection, but it does fall in the same passage. 
And here Jesus commanded the Gospel to go to the world. See it in verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Do you realize that the Easter morn, the fact of the Gospel being real, the Apostle Paul called it, called it Behold, I show you a mystery. He who was the first fruits from the dead, the rest of us will also be raised to newness of life. The Gospel changes everything. And Christ, in this very same passage, says, do not hold on to this story as though it were only one thing that happened in history, but instead carry it. We must take the Gospel to the nations. We must take the Gospel to every people. I'm so glad that we have Pastor Dalla with us this morning. He's going to share with us during our life group session. He's going to share with us about the ministry that he's doing in Australia. I'm excited about listening to that and hearing about that. But friend, it's not just about us sending out other missionaries. It's about us going and carrying the Gospel. Some of us, that might mean going overseas. And some of that might mean going interior. And some of us, it might mean staying right here and reaching our neighbors and co-workers and telling them of this glorious Gospel that Jesus went to the cross for my sin. And He did not stay in the tomb, but He raised again on the third day. So as I look across these people in the narrative, I see emotions all over the place. But can I give you some hope this morning, friend? You can drop the roots of your emotions in the soil of His truth. You can drop the roots of your emotions into the soil of His truth. So there's times when you begin to doubt. Does He really love me? Oh, take up the truth. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You might doubt, will I really be raised again from the dead? I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Put the roots of your emotion down into the soil of His truth, for you will have things that you can grasp. And He will not leave you shaky. The chief priests wanted to think that Jesus was a liar, but Jesus established without any doubt that He is the truth. Pilate wanted to be done with the whole ordeal, but Jesus was the most important person that Pilate would ever meet. The women were shaken when they arrived at the tomb, and Jesus' life became their greatest hope. So friend, I remind you this morning, you can trust Him. We are all sinners, friend. Every one of us is born a sinner. You cannot escape that. It's because Adam in the garden, Adam and Eve, Adam sinned, and because of that sin, sin and death have passed upon all men. God's wrath abides upon our sin. There's no way to escape that. Every one of us is a sinner, and His wrath abides upon our sin.
And yet God knew that you could not bear His wrath. It's impossible. Eternal separation from God, that's not what He created you for. He created you to give Him glory with your life. And yet, in sin, you abide under the wrath of God. And God does not want it that way. So God sent forth Jesus to be a propitiation, the gift that turned away His wrath. So God put Jesus on the cross and an infinite God poured out His infinite wrath upon Jesus, His Son, His Holy Son, who had done no sin. God poured out His wrath. Christ became sin for us. He had known no sin. Jesus took our sin on the cross and God poured out His wrath upon Jesus. And then God makes one promise to us. If you will but trust in Jesus... He will count that as righteousness for you. You can be made right with God by simply trusting in Jesus. Oh, this is the Gospel. So I wonder this morning as we close, I wonder if perhaps you've trusted in Jesus at the cross. Could I invite you to stand with me this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed this morning? We'll bow in prayer. But I want to ask you to examine your own heart whether you've trusted in the Lord Jesus. I'll give an invitation in a moment and I'll invite you, if you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll invite you to come. I'll meet you here. I'll have someone show you from the Scriptures how you can put your trust in the Lord Jesus. But friend, I can think of no better day than...